Well, we are wrapping up this week and next week uh, this letter to the Philippians. I think uh, Michelle was a little um, uh, surprised to hear that, uh, that I think she thought it would wrap up last week. And, uh, and then she was surprised to hear that it was going to go another week, and she was really surprised to hear that it's actually going to go to next week. So, uh, yep, that's kind of what we do around here. Um, but this letter to the Philippians uh, has had a lot of important things uh, to teach us, and we're, we're nearing the end here. And actually, as we get to this section, we are really almost, you could argue, at the, the section that is the main point of this letter. Now, we talked about before how uh, Paul addressed this great uh, conflict that was going on there between two very godly and probably long-standing members of the church, Yodia and Syntyche, and that that conflict probably um, was a main point of the, the content of the letter. But the letter itself is serving, its sort of primary point for even being sent is to serve as a receipt for the, the gift that Paul has received. Remember, Paul is in prison. He's writing this letter about 10 years after this church in Philippi was planted by him. He's now in prison in Rome, and they have sent supplies and money to him via a member named Epaphroditus. And so the letter itself is letting them know, I received it, thank you. And that's the section that we're in now, is this section of a receipt. So our passage today is Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking specifically today at verses 14 through 19. But uh, I'll begin at verse 10, uh, just so that we kind of set the context and again remember what he said last week. If you are going to use the Bible in the seats in front of you underneath. If you didn't bring one, you'll find our passage on page 982. It says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So again, this is... Paul, uh, Paul's response to their gift. And, and this verse here, verse 14, it's the closest that he comes to a thank you. 
in this entire letter. Now, again, it's not because he doesn't like them or has been mean. The whole time in the letter, he's gushed about how much they mean to him, how much he prays for them, that they're his joy and crown, they're his beloved. I mean, he has said in so many ways he absolutely loves this church. But again, he hasn't really said thank you, just those two words. Usually, he's talking about how he's praising God and thanking God for what they've done for him. And and here, you see him say, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. That yet is kind of nevertheless. It's almost like what he's doing here in saying this is, in a sense, countering what they may have thought given what he just said in 10 to 13. Because what he just said, as I read here, is hey, listen, you gave me a a great gift, but I want to remind you that, in a sense, I didn't need that gift. He said, I felt no need for anything because I have learned the secret of contentment. I have learned that whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, whether I am abounding or whether I've been brought low, uh, the secret of contentment is that I can endure all of these things through Christ who gives me strength. So that's what he just said in verse 13. And so it's almost like now in verse 14, he says, nevertheless, so you don't get the sense that in any way I'm, I'm disparaging your gift. It was very kind of you to give this gift to me. Now notice how he says it, though. He, he puts it in an interesting way. He doesn't say, it was kind of you to give me this gift. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. What an interesting way to put it. I mean, Paul is in trouble. He's awaiting trial before Caesar, Caesar Nero, who isn't really a fan of Christians. And as he's awaiting this trial, he has great needs. He's been put in there for preaching the gospel. Uh, As far as Rome is concerned, uh, you know, he, he, he may as well die for preaching a false god. And so he's in trouble. And he's saying, by sending Epaphroditus to me, you are joining, in a sense, in my trouble. Now the word here that is translated share, it's, it's a fine uh, translation, the word there is fellowship, what you've probably heard koinonia before. So you could translate this literally It was kind of you to have fellowship in my trouble. Now, if you've been in church long enough, if you've been in Christian circles long enough, you've probably heard that word a lot, fellowship. Yeah, we got together, we had a great time of fellowship. Usually when you hear fellowship, if you're like me, you tend to think of things like game nights. Uh, You tend to think of things like the congregational luncheons that we have. Uh, If you're specific to Meadowcroft, you you tend to think of things like blueberry pies and LaCroix. Uh, The point is, that's what we tend to think of as fellowship. It's these things that we do together. It's fun times that you have with Christians. But I think that when you look at Scripture, uh, we have to understand that fellowship is not primarily something we do. Before it is something we do, fellowship is primarily something we have already. We have fellowship not by our own efforts. 
we have fellowship because of what Christ, through His Spirit, has done in our hearts. We are in fellowship already. We have fellowship with believers all over the world, and we have fellowship with one another. We, we see this in Scripture. We saw it in, earlier in Philippians 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, fellowship, in the Spirit, and he goes on, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we use it a lot as a benediction here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So before luncheons and LaCroix and blueberry pie, before that kind of fellowship, that is a secondary byproduct of the fellowship that we have with the triune God through His divine power. And if that's true, if we already have fellowship through God's power, then if you think about it, we already have fellowship with each other in good times and in bad. So when we think of fellowship as just getting away at a men's retreat and sitting around a campfire, yeah, that is fellowship. But Bringing food to someone in need. Sitting by a fellow Christian's bedside who is dying and has days left on this earth. That is fellowship. Fellowship is entering into the good and into the bad. That's why Paul can say, you have fellowship in my trouble. As a matter of fact, we see earlier in, in Philippians that they already had trouble uh, just by being a church. Just by being a church in a Roman colony surrounded by paganism, they were already experiencing some kind of alienation and persecution. We don't know exactly what they were all that they were experiencing. But if they weren't already identified with this outlaw Paul, then by sending in these gifts and sending Epaphroditus, now they definitely are, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be marked as being in league with someone who's awaiting trial with Caesar, See, when, when we think of trouble, that, that word, again, is a fine translation, but I think given our situation, we, what, what kind of trouble do we usually have? Um, it's, I mean, you know, oftentimes we get frustrated uh, with, with, with very mundane things that, that really Paul would have been glad to have, you know, like air conditioning that doesn't really work very well, that kind of thing. But when we look at this word trouble that Paul uses here, it, it means trouble that inflicts distress, oppression, affliction, or tribulation. And we see this word being used all throughout the New Testament. Acts 11, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that word persecution is the same word. Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Sufferings is the same word used here as trouble. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Trouble, the same word. 
So Paul and these Philippian Christians fellowshiped in all kinds of ways. We, we know in Acts that when the church began, they fellowshiped in the house of Lydia, feasting. They also fellowshiped in the bad times. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Again, same word. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I bring this up because it, it sort of fits with the rest of the passage. In fact, I, was, I, I shared with, uh, with all of you uh, in um, something that I sent out uh, at the end of every uh, year, around December, I sent out a, a, a reminder that, that maybe uh, you, you want to try reading through the Bible in a year. And this year, I also recommended a devotional by Alistair Begg. And uh, I've had a number of you come, come up and tell me that you got the devotional, that you're really liking it. Uh, the one I, I recommended is volume one. I actually got volume two, and I'm going through that this year. And this week, I was reading through that, you know, the, the different uh, devotions each day. And Alistair Begg had one this week, and he says this, listen to this. The example of this early church, he's talking about Philippi, is a challenging call to contemporary Christianity, which, if we're honest, is all too often marked by fickleness. Many Christians tend to be uncommitted when times are good and unreliable when times are bad. We so easily treat the opportunities of fellowship, worship, and the hearing of God's Word with an arm's-length approach. If a teacher or a book appeals to our sense of need, scratches where we itch, or tickles our fancy, then we engage with them for a while. But if things go awry, or if we find our way of life challenged, or if being alongside another Christian becomes costly rather than easy, then the temptation for many of us is to head for new pastors. Paul shows us a better way, a more Christ-like way. We are called to choose commitment to one another through the ups and downs of life. I want to encourage you, if you're a member of Meadowcroft, because I see us doing that here. Uh, we, we, I see this in, in many ways and in many examples and, and opportunities. When we have members in need I see other members coming alongside and, and joining in and fellowshipping in their trouble. Uh, Paul says in verses 15 and 16, he goes back to his history with them, and you Philippians yourselves know that, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, Paul is going back to, to what happened there at the very beginning of the church. I mean, he planted, again, about 10 years earlier, he, he preached the gospel to them. The Philippian jailer was converted. A church was begun. They began meeting in Lydia's house. Uh, elders and deacons were appointed and, and all of these things. And Paul said, uh, essentially, when he left there, Macedonia, that's where Philippi was, when he left there and went to Thessalonica, which was the very next place he went. He was in Philippi in Acts 16, and then in Acts 17, he headed to Thessalonica. And he said, the second that I left Philippi and left you, 
and went to the very next place, you and you alone immediately entered into supporting my missionary work. Now just think about that for a minute. That is a very spiritually mature church. And again, Paul expresses a lot of thanksgiving for this church. He has great love for this church. This was a a new church plant. How many new church plants that are barely surviving, that have only a few members that are under oppression, are thinking about supporting missionaries elsewhere? That's exactly what they did. As a brand new church, they joined in and began helping with his needs. Now, Paul's personal philosophy was essentially to be self-supporting. If you read, Paul talks about how he would go to a city, he would begin preaching the gospel, and he would do tent-making. You've probably heard that phrase before. Yeah, he does tent-making to support himself. That comes from this era, Paul. And that's because in that era, there were orators that would go around. And these orators would go around and they would, with flowery language, dispense knowledge to people. But they would charge for their knowledge. So if you want to hear me come and speak about life and give you all of my pearls of wisdom, then you must pay for it. And people would. They would pay for these orators to speak to them and share their knowledge. Paul wanted people to know that there was no charge for the gospel. That when he entered a a city, the gospel is free of charge. I'm not here to have you pay for me to give you the gospel. Now, that is what Paul decided to do. He decided to separate himself specifically so that there would be no charge or no fee for the gospel. He's not instructing churches to do that for their pastors. In fact, For pastors, he says, churches, you need to support your pastors. But again, that's not a fee being charged. That's believers coming together and saying, we want to be fed free of charge, and so we want you to have the freedom and the opportunity to feed us so we will support you. See see the difference there. So Paul was basically, for the most part, self-supporting. The Philippian church, I don't know how much they knew about that. Maybe they did, but it didn't matter to them. As far as they were concerned, they wanted to see Paul thrive. They knew Paul was probably going to go and do tent making and support himself, but nonetheless, when he left, they sent money everywhere he went immediately when he went to Thessalonica to support him. Now, as I thought about that this week, I thought, what, again, what kind of spiritual maturity that is? If you're a church, and you're a fledgling church, and you have the Apostle Paul with you. He's the one who week in and week out, when, you begin, when, you begin, uh, when you're formed, is preaching God's Word to you. He is the one who's looking around and, and seeing what men you have there that, that are potential elders. He is the one helping you choose officers for your church. He's the one praying for you. He's the one visiting people in their homes and and praying with them and, and sitting around and having meals and fellowshipping, right? You have the Apostle Paul there with you. Don't, don't you think it was a benefit to them? I, I can't imagine how it wouldn't be. It, any church would greatly benefit from Paul being there. Now, 
Paul planted lots of churches, and he left lots of churches to go on his and further his missionary journey. But this church said, we want to support your leaving us. Just think about that. I mean, if, if I'm that church, I, I'm kind of hoping Paul can't leave. Even if he tells me, you know, I've been called by God, I'm, I'm hoping to leave you soon and go elsewhere and preach the gospel, I would have a tendency to want to be selfish and say, actually, Paul, we love having you here. Can you just build a mega church right here in Philippi? Why, why, do, why go anywhere else? We've got, we're a, we're a great city, we're a colony of Rome, we got money, we got great theaters, we'll pay you, we've got people with money. Why don't you just hang here, Paul, and build a great church here? Instead, they gave him money to support him in his departure, and they continued to give him money. Why in the world would they do that? Well, I think they understood at least three things. They understood that continuing to go out to other cities and to other areas of the Gentile world was the calling that Paul had upon his life. It wasn't to stay there in one place. They also understood that the kingdom of God is far bigger than their own church. And they understood that ultimately the one that they needed was not Paul but Christ. Paul was not ultimately the one who was going to sustain their church. In fact, Paul was going to be martyred at one point. And then who would lead their church? Well, ultimately they needed the Lord Jesus Christ to lead and sustain them. And that's one of the reasons at Meadowcroft that we, not only, well, for one thing, we pray, we, we try every week in our pastoral prayer to, to pray for other churches around the world and, and around our area and, and around our country because we want to remind ourselves every week that the kingdom of God is a lot bigger than Meadowcroft. And in reminding ourselves of that, we also are giving ourselves a weekly lesson that God may call any one of us away from here at any time. And if he calls one of us away from here, whether it be a member, whether it be an elder, whether it be me, we know that what we need is not a particular person. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, and he is our captain. And he is the one who will provide for us. I remember uh, when I was uh, in, at a church in Maryland, I was beginning to feel like I, I really needed to, to, to move out of the position I was in. I was an assistant pastor, and, uh, and I really felt like I, I wanted to go and uh, be a senior pastor somewhere. And I thought that I, I had... Uh, a lot of the qualifications, but I, I really felt like I needed uh, some instruction and some guidance and, uh, and some modeling from a, a, a leader that I respected. And so I found that leader uh, in, in, the, in the person of Mark Dever. Uh, I, found, I found Mark Dever through, some of you probably heard of him, uh, through his books, uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church and others where I would read through that and think, yeah, this guy really knows how to lead a church. He knows what, what a church is about, what its mission is, what, what we're called to do. And so I prayed for probably two years, Lord, I, I would love for you to lead me to someone like Mark Dever. And in God's providence, 
he led me to Mark Dever. It's a long story, probably be great to tell you, but I don't have time today at this pulpit. But uh, Mark Dever, uh, on his own, offered me to do, and I'm still the only PCA guy ever, in the, it's a Baptist church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, but in the history of that church, in the history of his internships, he offered, without me ever asking, for me to do the five-month-long internship and study side-by-side side with him uh, at Capitol Hill Baptist. And that is what the Lord gave me, uh, without me asking, before coming here and being called here to be the senior pastor. And what I remember is that so many people, members of that church that I was in in Maryland, so many of them came up to me and told me how glad they were that I was given this opportunity and that I would be leaving them, and they were telling me that through tears. They, they didn't want me to leave, but on the, other, on the other hand, they understood that that's what God was calling me to. And so they were excited for me and excited to see what God would do in his kingdom outside of that church. Now, Paul says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, okay? You, you gave me a great gift, but I didn't seek the gift. I sought the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is using accounting language here. Paul is saying that there is this kind of divine account that you can invest in with God. And he's saying that by this church giving to Paul's ministry, they are in a sense accruing interest in that divine account with God that will be paid out to them one day because of what they have given to God's kingdom. It's sort of like what Paul is saying is, is there's going to be a kind of gift from God that they receive because of the gift that Paul received from them. One New Testament scholar says this, the gift itself, he reminds them, is incidental. What he desires most of all for them to experience is an ever-increasing balance in their divine account, which in this first instance has to do with eschatological reward. In other words, Paul is thinking about the last day. When Christ returns on the last day, he will remember that you gave to me and supported my ministry. You are storing up in his account. And another New Testament scholar says, God will repay the advances made to Paul by his dear friends. Fruit has eschatological significance. Again, it points forward to the harvest at the end of time. But he says this, but it's unnecessary to choose between a future reward and a present recompense. The picture painted by the accounting metaphor is of compound interest that accumulates all the time until the last day. So what Paul essentially sounds like he's saying is when you give to the church, when you give of the resources that God has given you and you give to the church, whether it be this local church or another Christian organization or a Christian ministry or a missionary somewhere, then in essence you're giving to God. You're giving to God. You're storing it with Him. And God will pay you back with more interest than you can ever imagine, both now and later. 
when he returns. You see, when you give to God, brothers and sisters, when you give out of the hard-earned money that you have made, you're demonstrating a few things. You're demonstrating, first of all, that everything that you have is his anyway. There's nothing that you have that he hasn't given to you. It's not yours that you're saying, well, I guess I'll give some of this to God. It's his that he has said, I guess I'll give some of this to you. That's basically what you have. And you also are demonstrating not only that that what you have is his anyway, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but you're also demonstrating that you care about the preaching of the gospel and the spread of God's kingdom. That that's one of the things on your radar screen. That when you look at your budget for the year, you're not just saying, hey, let's take that trip to, uh, to Italy this year, and I'd like to also uh, try to fix up my man cave a little bit, and, and maybe, you know, let's uh, get re- re- retile this floor. But you're also saying, and I care that God's kingdom is supported. I care that God's church is supported. I care that the gospel go out into the ends of the earth. That's part of your budget. And you also demonstrate that you trust in God. That because everything you have is His, that He will provide all that you need. That you don't need to rely on your money for security. That you need to rely on God for security. And doing that, it can't help but help you spiritually. I mean, what does Jesus say? Jesus, when He's speaking about money, He says, look, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, your treasure is far safer in heaven than here. If you're relying on your treasure here, that can be wiped out at any time. What does Jesus say, though? He closes that out by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And I think Jesus is not only saying what I think when I read that, typically you, you, I, I read that as him saying, a person puts his resources where his heart already is. I think he is saying that, that your heart is either with me and you'll put your treasure with me, or it's not, and you won't. But I think he's also, because if you look at, at, at how he words that, he says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I think maybe even more what he's saying is your heart will follow where you put your money. Your heart will follow where you put your money. If you put your money into yourself, If all of your money goes to you and you alone and none to God, your heart will begin to be turned in on yourself. Your heart will follow your money. And this goes not only for individuals, but I think it goes for churches as well. A lot of churches today are very self-focused. Every penny that they get from a member goes back into themselves. 
It goes back into their buildings and their programs and bigger and better barns, no pun intended. Uh, we at Meadowcroft, we intentionally, it's not wrong to support yourself. You absolutely should. If God gives us a building, if God gives us land, if God gives us a pastor, if God gives, you know, there are a lot of things that we use our budget. You can even get the annual report if you'd like and read through it. There are a lot of things here that we spend our money on, and rightly so. We get Sunday school curriculum, air conditioning, heat, pastor's salary, everything that you can think of, but we also take a fair share of our money that the Lord gives to us, and we give it to other ministries. We give it to missionaries. We give it to ministries and churches in need because we don't want to be completely self-focused. We want to see God's kingdom supported elsewhere. And we do that even though Paul understands it is a sacrifice. It's not easy to do this. It's not easy to take some of your money that you have earmarked for you and say, I'm not going to spend it on me, I'm going to give it to them. I'm not going to use it for me, I'm going to use it for God. That's hard to do. That's why Paul calls it a sacrifice. Verse 18, I have received full payment. They gave him a lot. I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And then he describes them this way, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Christian, do you want to please God? I mean, I hope that's part of your desire every day, is I want to please God with my day. Paul describes here their offering, their gift that they gave to him as an offering, a sacrifice pleasing to God. Here again, Paul uses accounting language. He talks about, I have received full payment. Basically, that could be translated, here is my receipt for your gifts, paid in full. Here's the receipt you sent. I'm giving you a receipt back. The more I studied this passage, I thought, man, this is probably Jeff's favorite passage. <laughs> it's got so much accounting language in it. <clears throat> that was a bad joke. Uh, <laughs> but I had to get it in there. Um, now, now notice Paul says three things in this receipt. He says the gifts, along with Epaphroditus, all arrive safely and they're now in my possession. He wants to reassure them. Again, Epaphroditus went on perhaps a 1,200-mile journey with bandits and robbers on the road. He wants them to know, look, everything you gave is with me. It didn't get taken from some, by someone else. He also wants them to know, look, your gifts are generous. They're more than I needed. But he also wants them to know that, that more than just useful for him, they are a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And here you see a dramatic shift from accounting language, which is what he's used, to Old Testament sacrificial language. We see this kind of language of a sacrifice and being a pleasant and fragrant offering. We see it in relation to what's called the burnt offering in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The priest... This is talking about the burnt offering shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This burnt offering 
was to be a male without blemish. And all of it, and that was unique in the offerings, that the entire offering was burned up to God. And God said, when I smell that burnt offering, it will be a pleasing aroma to me. The significance of the burnt offering was that this lamb, this male without blemish, was a substitute for the sinner. That the sins would be placed on the lamb, the lamb would be burned up completely, and the lamb would take the judgment that was due the sinner. And it represented complete and entire devotion to God, this burnt offering. And Paul is saying, the gifts that you gave me, they, they're like that. They're, they're like a burnt offering. Because really, Paul says to Christians that not only should our money, but our entire lives should be like a burnt offering to God. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a burnt one, but as you live, live in service to God, a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. Colossians 3.17, Christian, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. May your life be a living sacrifice. So Paul is saying, if everything in your life ought to be devoted and given to God, that would include your money as well. That would include everything. And the important point is that he gets to in verse 19, and it's what my dad told me a thousand times as I grew up in his household, as he taught me how to tithe, as he taught me how to give uh, of my first fruits when I would receive my paycheck from work, he told me over and over again, son, you can't outgive the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul says here. Verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Look at, first of all, he calls him my God. Paul is speaking from personal experience. If anyone has had to rely on the Lord to provide all of his needs, it's Paul. How many times, I went over last week that laundry list of afflictions that he went through. When he was adrift at sea after a shipwreck, I mean, how could you not rely on the Lord to not drown and to somehow make it safely to shore to continue your mission? Paul knows that ultimately everything that he has was from God's hand. We said that earlier in our confession of faith. What is providence? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them, I love this language, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. There is no chance in a world ruled by God. How does the knowledge of God's providence help us? Well, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God that nothing will separate, him from, separate us from his love. 
Notice that Paul makes a promise to you, Christian. A promise that no matter what you lose in this life or give for him, God will, beyond any shadow of a doubt, he doesn't say might, he said God will supply all of your needs. Guaranteed. Now notice, he doesn't say God will supply all of your wants. He doesn't say God will supply all of your desires. That's not what God's in the business of providing. We often have bad wants and bad and sinful desires and desires that go against his will for us. Paul's not saying that. Paul is writing this from prison, a place he even says early in the letter he'd rather not be in. God is not providing right then and there when he writes this letter freedom for Paul from prison. What we need as human beings is much more than material possessions and material comfort. All you need to do is look at the miserable lives of the fabulously wealthy to know that they need a lot more than that. However, God can and will supply all that you need. Friend, we cannot outgive God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When I was offered the internship at Capitol Hill Baptist, the only thing Mark, Mark Dever said to me, go home, talk to Michelle, make a list of all the reasons this won't work. Come back to me in two weeks. We'll sit down and we'll have lunch and we'll see if we can answer all of the, all the opposition. We were able to cross off every reason that it wouldn't work except one, the money. I would be leaving a paid position at a church and doing an unpaid internship. How would we make it? How would we pay the bills? Mark said, I don't know. I can't answer that for you. I went home. I told Michelle it would be unpaid. We prayed about it. We fasted. Michelle, one morning in worship, looked over at me and said, you have to do this. I'm, I'm convinced we have to do this, and I know that God will provide for us somehow. She even added, look, you prayed for two years for Mark Dever. If you don't do this, don't ever pray for anything again. <laughs> That's Michelle for you. So, I said, well, how are we going to do it then? She said, it's okay. We, we have enough money and savings. We'll just use up all of our savings if we have to for you to do this internship. That'll pay our bills. The pastor of the church, senior pastor, brought me into his office and said, I'll tell you what, we will pay you your salary for the next five months if you will agree to come back here and rejoin us for two more years. And I knew that I, I thought God was calling me away and to go somewhere else to be a senior pastor. And so I said to him, I'd rather not make that deal because I want to be free to go where God leads me when this internship ends. So I, I, I gave up the salary. Would you believe it that once word went around in the church that I was going to do an unpaid internship for five months, most of the people that came up in tears and told me they were happy that I was doing this internship without me ever asking anyone for a single penny started giving for us that we would be provided for during those five months. 
all from various people, various amounts. One man gave us $10,000. Others gave us 50 bucks. When we tallied it all up, on the day that I left for the internship, it added to the dollar what I would have made over those five months had I been paid my salary. Friend, you, you can't outgive God. I didn't ask anyone for a dollar, and the Lord said, I'm going to provide everything you would have made. Paul doesn't say God will provide all of our wants, and he also doesn't say when all our needs will be met, but he says one day they will be. See, the other thing that we confuse is not only that God will provide all of my wants, but that if he provides everything I need, he's going to provide it now in this life. That's simply not true. He can. What we need to understand is that God is, he is omnipotent. There will never be a time in your life when you need something and God is in heaven wringing his hands because he doesn't know how to help you. That is an impossibility. If God wants you to be completely free of cancer now, you will be. He is never impotent. He is omnipotent. But sometimes we lose sight of eternity. See, when we get cancer and we say, Lord, please heal me from this cancer, after all, you said you will give me everything I need. Do we need life? Of course. That's the most basic thing we need. But the fact that he doesn't give it to us in this life doesn't mean we will never have it. See, when we keep our eyes on eternity, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day every problem that we have will be a thing of the past. Every monetary need will be a thing of the past. Every moment of hunger will be a thing of the past. Every tear that we shed will be a thing of the past. Every disease that we have will be a thing of the past. God will supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And that's the only way that it is guaranteed. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And God prepared, brought the city down from heaven, prepared as a bride for her, uh, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed every day as we await that day. And the only reason that day can come is because, Paul says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is He who was the burnt offering. It was he who alone lived a fragrant life totally pleasing to God. It was he who alone was completely and totally dedicated to the Lord. And that's why he is called a lamb without blemish or spot. 
That's what was needed for the burnt offering, and that's what we received. And Paul says, therefore, brothers, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Brothers and sisters, it is his life and death Not anything that we do, it is his life and death alone that secures this amazing future that we have in glory. So, let's live each day with everything that we have as a sacrifice pleasing to God now as we await that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this word. Father, we are so thankful that Christ was the sacrifice for us. And Father, we pray that you would remind us of his sacrifice, that we may use everything that we have for your honor and glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.